Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles, the next generation. I am Ron Kolok, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable, the mystical, the magical, the macabre, New England's own Van Helsink. And with me, all the way from East Bridgewater, is the blonde bombshell herself, Ann Kerrigan. Well, good evening. How are you? Okay, having a little Skypey problems, are you? Yeah, a little Skype crisis, yep. <laughs> hmm. Luckily, I, I got a new computer because my old one was uh, dying on a regular basis, so... But realized I never set it up before I went on vacation. Oh, well. Good girl. Yep, right on the ball. Blondie. What can yeah. I say? <laughs> anyway, so uh, I finally tracked down someone that, who was a regular part of this show... And uh, she went a sabbatical, hidden to the land of the uh, big uh, foot and all those Saskatchewanians and everything else. And she's been <laughs> hiding, hiding out in there. And uh, I don't know, maybe working on another book. Who knows? But anyway, uh-huh. joining joining us now is uh, someone who seems like I've known forever, but have not. Uh, she is none other than the uh, queen of the bazaar. Valor Ventura. Hello. Hey. Hey. Hi, Varla. Hi. <laughs> where the hell? Where the hell you been? Uh, now, if I, I can't tell you one hundred percent because you know your life could be on the line if I reveal really oh, no. where I've been. <laughs> <laughs> this is the next generation, right? <laughs> yeah, it could be. Um, I have, yeah, I've been doing many things. You are correct. I have been writing another book, another Mm -hmm. book in the um, sort of magical creatures series. And I just finished that up. It was a surprisingly grueling process. Um, (laughs) I think you, you know, as an an author, Ron, for sure, like it takes a lot longer than you think it's going to take. And there are multiple rounds of revisions. And um, I just sort of got lost in a rabbit hole. But I have a wonderful book coming out. It'll be coming out in early 2017. And that's on sort of freaky creatures of the fairy kingdom. It's kind of a follow up to all the things I had to shove in the appendix for Banshees, um, werewolf, Vampires and Werewolves, that book. Nice. I touched on some of the other creatures like pukas and changelings and um, creepy creatures of that nature. And so I get into those a bit more. Bog monsters, um, pixies, elves, goblins, um, the good, the bad, the ugly. Nice. No puck, no puck wedgies? <laughs> What's that? No puck wedgies? No, uh, no. Well, puck. There are a couple of um, sort of puck-ish creatures that are um, kind of sound more like a uh, a brownie or a goblin than an actual puck, like you might think of with Midsummer Night's Dream. So I don't know if those those count or. 
I guess, I guess. You know, I think, that's, I think puck wedgies is a local thing for us, Ron. Uh, yeah, but that's besides the point. Uh, <laughs> you know, a lot of creatures are local. It's not, not that they aren't. I mean, you know... Uh, the, the Yeti's lo- local. It's not. It's not in North America, really. It's a. Uh, it's more of a. Unless I'm wrong, which I could be. Uh, Puck, but you know, Puckwudgie then possibly me. You, you don't know what Puckwudgies are. I, I've never heard of a Puckwudgie, and maybe it's your, maybe it's the New England uh, accent. But no, I don't <laughs> think so. I don't think so. <laughs> don't don't blame that on me. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean. This, I mean, it's famous on uh, on uh, the internet. Uh, this the attack of the puckwudgies when we were actually hunting for these creatures, and uh, Maureen, my partner at the time, was possessed by one. It was yeah. It's go on, go on to the internet and YouTube and check out uh, attack of the puckwudgies. It was okay. been on. <laughs> can we tell on. her what it? Can we tell her what it is? Though? Yeah, I am. I am. When I get to it. And, oh, okay. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's been on it's been on the uh, destination channel and the, and the travel channel and, and many others as well. So it's yeah, it's it's not just a local phenomenon. It's pretty well known in the paranormal community, anyways. So, anyways, uh, the Pukwudgie, the expert I consider on the Pukwudgie would be Chris Balzano, uh, who used to have a website called uh, Par- uh, Massachusetts Crossroads, and uh, now he no longer does. But uh, it's it's um, from Massachusetts. Uh, I forget. The, do you know the exact story, Ian, or before I butcher it? No, go ahead. I mean, I do, but... It's, go ahead. Well, Let her rip. Let her rip. Puck wedgies are uh, Native American uh, kind of... Um, they're mischievous spirits who uh, they cause trouble. They lure people to their deaths. Um, and the Native Americans believed in them and here in, we have the Bridgewater Triangle in uh, in New England here and they are famous for you know inhabiting the swamps of the Bridgewater Triangle and Freetown State Forest oh, so as are well they, are they kind of um, go- like, are they goblin like? Elfy yeah the little elfies little elfish yeah. gobliny things okay yeah. well there's definitely a couple of creatures that fit that description i just i never heard of the puckwudgie mm-hmm. itself so obviously i need to stay in touch with you more when i'm <laughs> i think they would be on a par with like um an elemental oh okay okay i think what do you think ron yeah yeah remember vala i'm the one that told you about the floating feet that were found all over the place okay okay so, yeah, remember that? So you should be in touch with me is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, you you, uh, you did you shared with me the, the sad conclusion they finally came to with the everything's coming up footy. Yes. <laughs> but it, make light of the horrors of people's um, sad death. But, I mean, their feet were popping up everywhere. It's hard not yeah, to yeah. kind of make a pun mm. on that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but anyways, uh, the, the the way uh, the Pukwudgies came into being is that the creator gods, uh, they were around at that time. And the, the Pukwudgies were helpful creatures at that time. And the, the creator gods, by the way, were giants. And uh, eventually they started to go astray and they started to uh, steal the gods' foods and stuff. 
So the creator god sent his son out to uh, deal with them, and they ambushed him and killed the creator's uh, god's son. And uh, so he went after him. He got him, and he grabbed him and squished him and threw him all over New England. So since then, they've been going around doing bad deeds and luring people to their deaths and uh, and stealing their souls. So Basically just like generations of revenge. Yeah, kind of. Or normal revenge. Yeah, I can look behind that, so. <laughs> I've, I've actually run into a couple of them uh, in my paranormal investigating, uh, well, not, well, other than the Freetown State Forest, but uh, people who have experienced uh, these little creatures. So, I don't, you never know. Yeah, they sound very much like um, a sort of a, a hobgoblin or another kind of destructive uh, pixie or something like that where you know it's although they sound a little more vengeful for the most part yeah things like hobgoblins are pretty nice unless you get lazy or you leave them out curdled milk or you, oh. <laughs> you, you give them leftovers instead of preparing their own plate and things like that and then they'll sort of wreak havoc um they don't hobgoblins and um Brownies brownies are kind of like the gentle version of hobgoblins. They don't necessarily lure you to your death, but they certainly mm. don't do anything to prevent you from, you know, putting yourself in peril or, you know, and banshees are kind of like that too. They're not really there to lead you to your death, but they are there to let you know that death is waiting for you and is knocking at your door and they might, you know, even uh, inadvertently cause your death from... Oh. Uh, Fear of the Banshee. Oh, that's a shame. okay. Wow. So I, I mean, thought you, brownies just sold cookies. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's the Boy Scouts. Brownies are the Girl sort Scouts. Of, so the brownies, I think, are the Welsh equivalent. I believe that brownies um, tend to. Uh, the word brownie comes from a Welsh word that I would totally butcher if I tried to say. But, <laughs> It, it it was translated in English as brownie. Um, you you would call them hobgoblins in England. In um, Ireland, they're called many different things, pixies. Um, sometimes they're just referred to as fairies. You know, that whole realm is sort of interchangeable. There, there are so many terms that, you know, the word fairy can mean so many things, and the word brownie and imp, and, um, you know, there's a lot of different, different variants, but... Um, you know, some of them are particularly creepy and evil, and some of them are just sort of going about their business. And should you happen to cross them, you know, you have to be very clever to outsmart them. Um, they love to make fools of humans, of course. So mm. that's not well, very hard. Not, yeah, it's not hard to do, right? <laughs> You're absolutely so, right on that one. So we have all these uh, creatures, and you mentioned fairies. Now, are there good fairies and bad fairies? Well, you know, I don't like to think of them in quite such ter of terms of good and bad because I think mm -hmm. the fairy realm is a, uh, a realm that is magical, but it's not uh, necessarily um, invisible or, in or inaccessible to us. It has a bit of an overlap and, you know, Time and, and history and, and, you know, folklore and fairy stories have been part of our culture, um, you know, since the beginning of time, these sort of stories about things that live beyond the, um, the warmth of the campfire. 
So um, I, I don't, I mean, and I've, I've been asked this question a lot about mermaids. Like, are mermaids evil because they really <laughs> like to lure men to their death? <laughs> what, wait a minute, what woman doesn't? I don't know if they're really evil. Um, it's almost like a, it's com- almost like the dog that just like keeps doing the, the, you know, keeps stealing the dinner off the table when you're not looking, even though you've said no. And even though you might be standing right there, it's just this sort of like, it's this natural thing that they kind of can't help doing. And you can do a lot to try and train them. But ultimately, if you're not looking and there's a steak on the table, mm-hmm. no well-trained dog is going to do anything but jump up there and get it. They're going to seize their opportunity. So I, so I guess maybe there are more like opportunists and helpers. There's mm-hmm. fairies that give and fairies that take. Um, and it definitely can, you know, the stories do, um, while there's consistencies over like, you know, a particular creature, which is kind of how you end up grouping them, there's a there's a lot of variation in the individual and how they, um, how they interact. Leprechauns mm-hmm. are a great example. Um, there's, there's a collection of stories that, um, I was just reading as I was kind of going back through the manuscript before I turned it in. And there's this great collection of stories that were, um, from like turn of the century Ireland or maybe like late Victorian era era. And they're mm-hmm. about leprechauns and they're three different stories. And one is about someone who outsmarts a leprechaun. One is about someone who totally gets duped by a leprechaun. And the other one is about someone who everyone in the village thinks he's in cahoots with the leprechauns because he doesn't drink and he works hard. And so they uh. assume he won't come down the pub and they just <laughs> assume that he is like hiding and they get mad at him because he won't tell them where the leprechaun store is. And he's saying, no, I, I don't, I'm just hardworking. I don't drink my money away. I mean, he's just like, I'm just a regular guy. And they're saying, yeah, well, that's what someone who's hiding the leprechaun would say. <laughs> Ultimately he kind of dies alone and as a pauper because nobody believes him. So he kind of becomes Aww. ostracized. So oh, those are no. the same creature but three very you know very different uh stories that involve them the le- the creature's behavior is somewhat consistent and their appearance is somewhat consistent but overall mm-hmm. um you know the individual is sort of um you know there's so many variants right right it, it's like you know come to the pub come to the pub and you don't come to the pub so you know you yeah, die alone right right <laughs> <laughs> and then on top of that, you are your your crops are prospering. Well, that's probably because you're working from sunrise to sunup, and you get a good night's sleep, and you can put all the energy in, and you're not spending any of your money on drinking. So, <laughs> you know, the, like as a as an a, a reader and as an observer, you can read that. But in the in the time and the you know the way that it's told, um, mm-hmm. he's really kind of holding out on them. Right. Right. Now, you've written quite a few books besides Beyond Bizarre and and, uh, the other Bizarre book, uh, as well as Mermaids. And so why are you drawn to all this weird stuff? (laughs) I'm just saying. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) funny you ask. My my type of girl, but that's what I'm Why are you drawn to this kind of weird stuff, I should ask? Um, you know, I was raised, I think, in an environment that fostered weirdness. And I never really thought about it until I became an adult and 
you know, a young adult and was kind of out in the world and I sort of was gravitating toward the other weirdos. And, you know, I realized, no, not everybody was raised with Halloween decorations up year round. Not everybody's mother had ghost books, fairy books, and, you know, Dion Fortune and Aleister Crowley on her bookshelf for you to just peruse as if you had any idea what, you know, the book of the law was when you're seven. Of course you don't, but you're, you're getting something from these things, Ouija boards. And so, um, and I was, you know, we spent time in cemeteries as a child. I, I mean, I have very, very early memories of being in cemeteries. I'm talking like three years old, four years old. Oh, wow. Iconic. You know, you're so small then, and you're just looking at these beautiful statues. And at the time we lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, and you may be familiar with all, almost all of the cemeteries in the San Francisco Bay Area were moved uh, in the 1930s, they were moved mm-hmm. south to um, what is now known as the City of the Dead, and that's Colma. There were there; it used to be flower fields down there. Oh, that's wow. a story in and of itself. But the entire um, there are two or three spots where there's still a cemetery. There's the Presidio National Cemetery, which was not moved. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the the one the one that's at the Mission Dolores, which is a small little one. It was also the one that's in um, Vertigo, the movie Vertigo, where she goes and she sits oh, yeah. on the okay. grave. Okay, so that one's still there. And then there's a columbarium, and there's a couple of sort of like stray graves, and then there's you know the remnants of them. And constantly in San Francisco, as um, uh, in particular in the area around um, University of San Francisco, which is kind of in the center of the city, there was a huge cemetery there and frequently they'll be doing, you know, they've got to, they've got to do retrofitting, um, earthquake proofing, or they're putting in a new building on the campus. And it's pretty regular that as a coffin, um, uh, or skeletons are unearthed. Yeah. You know, when they put one of the museums in, um, they put an addition to the Palace of the Legion of Honor in the 1980s, I think, and they found tons of skeletons right where the cafe is. <laughs> oh, boy. So, and so, I think I, I grew up in, like, you know, spending time in these uh, old cemeteries and uh-huh. and having these impressions. And, and so to me it was, I was never afraid of ghosts. I've well, never been awesome. afraid of ghosts. That's never been something that I've been fearful of. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's been the least of my concerns and still is in the, in the, in the modern <laughs> world. <laughs> but I, I really attribute that to how I was raised and that I was raised to not think that that was a scary thing. Oh, that's, yeah. that's awesome. Can I ask now, so they, they moved, just because I'm a cemetery person. Oh, yeah. So they okay, moved these... you are. Yes, it's a <laughs> story. They... Okay, so what happened is um, in, the, in the late, I think it was in 1919 was the first vote. San Francisco was getting very crowded. This was long after the gold rush, and there was yeah. you know, yeah. the railroad boom, and San Francisco was just thriving. It was this huge hub, but it was a very small area. It's a little mm-hmm. peninsula, and, you know, it's surrounded by water on three sides, and there's only so much real estate. So um, I think it was city council. It came up to vote. You know, they put they put the vote up and um, it was shot down. The people shot it down. No way. You cannot move the cemeteries. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Now enter the Great Depression. It comes up for vote again. It's it's knocked down again. Um, I believe it. I believe 
there wasn't a third time. The third time might have just been like, we're doing it anyway. So basically what <laughs> happened is they did it anyway, but it wasn't until the 1930s. And uh, at this point, you know, you can imagine the economic state of the, um, uh, you know, of the country. And, you know, there's a variety of reasons. One is real estate. One is, um, you know, the, the belief someone said, oh, well, it might be hurting the water system and so sort of some things like that. But uh-huh. essentially what they did is they, they hired WPA workers and they, there are photos online. You can look up the archives um, at like the San Francisco Public Library. And um, uh, after the show, I'd be happy to share some of the links I have with you, Anne. I would love and, that. Um, yeah. <laughs> They so they they moved everything. They they moved Senator Broderick, who was this hero who um, was in a duel and went on to like be a champion for. Um, he was a champion for um, you know for sort of uh, the abolition of slavery and um, was you know trying to end the Chinese Exclusion Act and all these wonderful things. Well, he died in a duel. They put this huge monolith to him, of course, course. in the middle of the cemetery. And now that's been moved to Colma. So so it's just, so they moved everything. But of course, now you and I know (laughs) there's no way that the people who had gone back east, who are no longer in San Francisco, who's, you know, maybe their son or their husband or their uncle or someone was buried in the, you know, late 1800s and the, yeah. you know, the gold rush fell away. You're out of money. You go back east. Um, there, there's, there's tons of, tons of graves. Now, my brother said there was some, another factor, and that was that the, the cemeteries were very unkept and they mm-hmm. were being uh, attended to. So they were all, they were sort of a public hazard and they were just sort of ugly. And so people didn't want them right there. If you can imagine, right. cemetery be ugly. Um, but, you know, I kind of, gradually stumbled upon some of this information because when, although I had been raised in the Bay Area, when I moved to San Francisco as a young adult, you know, striking out on my own, I used to always find such comfort in a cemetery and then was able to, you know, I wasn't able to find any cemetery. So I was like, what? Okay, there's something here. And then I began to research where they had been and all Ah. that kind of stuff. And you you know. So anyways, before we get to that, because we're coming up to the break. Oh, sorry. In honor of uh, Viola, it's time to play one of the Beyond Bazaars. Ah. Lord of the Ring. More than one year after his wedding ring fell from his finger into the sea, a New Zealand man recovered the symbol of his love. When it slipped from his finger and sank to the bottom of the sea, Alakai Tamiope, who had been married only three months, did not lose all hope. He roughly marked the spot and pledged that he would find it. Using satellite coordinates and a prayer, he arranged a dive back in the spot where he believed it had disappeared. After searching for about an hour and a year, he spotted the ring shining through the waters. A fun little fact from Barla Ventura's Beyond Bazaar. Wow. So there you go. That's true love. True love. True love. Marriage. Marriage. Here we go. 
They were actually hoping that would be Hobbit-related, but it wasn't. (laughs) So we have no idea what they're playing, but uh, that's good, the part about it, because, uh, you know, we can react to them. We're all surprised. So do you you miss doing doing them, Vala? Doing who? (laughs) No! Vala! Doing these Beyond Bazaars! Yeah. Oh, yes. They they were very fun to do, and it was great because I would. Um, I still have my copy. I have a copy of the book of the bazaar and a copy of Beyond Bazaar dedicated to this, where I've actually X'd out the passages that I read so that I wasn't duplicating. Oh, uh, you're so sweet. I should auction that off now. They were really popular, and for those. If if you have you're new to the show and you haven't heard them, uh, the older shows had uh, Beyond yeah. Bizarre in it, and Valor yeah. recorded a whole bunch of these little stories, and some of them are, are really, really, really cool. I mean, they really tickle my fancy. But uh, some of them are really, really gross. <laughs> yeah, we got those too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get well, some gross ones. I don't think we we actually covered all of them. I think you know we probably did about a third of each book. Mm-hmm. And I had actually used some of the uh, excerpts as well as in my newsletter, and that was a, a popular uh, thing as well. Lucky you had two books, that's all I can say. <laughs> Lucky I had two. <laughs> Lucky I had two books were good, you know. Uh, but anyways, we got about a, a minute to break. And Valor, if somebody wants to find out more about you, where can they uh, do that? You can check my website, which is varlaventura.net. Uh, slightly different than the one on my spine of of the book and in my uh, author bio. It's varlaventura.net. Had a little dispute over the .com, and so I had to go to .net. That's a boring story I won't share with you here. Uh, You can reach me via email at varlaventura at gmail.com, and, of course, I'm also on Facebook. There you go. Um, And I have the website, Barla's website, .net, posted on our Ghost Chronicles Next Generation Facebook page if anybody wants to hop on there. So we have that link. So anyways, here's the tune. But uh, it's easy to remember, valaventura.net. Just think of the little men in the white coats with a big net trying to grab her. So anyways, (laughs) we'll be right back after the following messages. You're listening to Ghost Chronicles uh, Next Generation with Ann and Ron, our very special guest, Viola Victura. And we'll be right back. Can you hear me? My name is Harry Price. I am speaking to you via the medium of the Ghost Box. Many of you will know I carried out the first live radio broadcast from Haunted House way back in 1936 for the BBC. Now, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, I am still able to keep abreast of 21st century ghost hunting by listening to Ghost Chronicles International on Togginet, Parax Radio, The Ghost Channel, and even on something called a podcast. Two splendid chaps host it. One is an American who calls himself New England's own Van Helsing, although I have discovered his real name is Ron Kolek. The other is Stephen Parsons, and he's a paranormal scientist. Well, mustache, I'm required elsewhere on something called a K2. But don't forget, I'll be listening in every Tuesday from 8 o'clock in Great Britain and 3 o'clock on the American Eastern Seaboard. I trust you will join me there.
Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. Next Generation and was taken by the music. But that, of course, we all know is the theme to Van Helsink and our new comeback uh, music after the break. Oh, cool. Thanks for cluing me in. Yes, nice to know. Yes. you got to let it breathe for a while, though, because it's so okay. motivating. And welcome back to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Ron and Ian and our special guest, Varla Ventura. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Thanks for cluing me in. All right, but we're back. There you go. That's it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, by the way, did you know the word tidy whitey comes from uh, the European uh, for bathing suit? No. Yeah, well, it's just another weird fact. Thanks for sharing. Well, I, I try. I try very much okay. so. Okay. That's awesome. It's, yeah. That's awesome. So we have, we have a question from the chat. Um, from John, and John would like to know if, if uh, Varla believes in sirens. Oh, yes, absolutely. Now, sirens are a slight, slightly different variation on the classic mermaid. We probably know them from, you know, the Odyssey is where we, we get our like, popular culture idea of sirens but mm -hmm. absolutely and there are many accounts um especially in early uh greek travels uh of you know these sort of maiden like creatures now unlike mermaids sirens can actually come out of the water and they aren't necessarily um half sea creature in mm -hmm. uh, many times which is which makes them even a little more freaky because they might be like up on a rock or far enough out that you actually would think it's a bona fide woman in need of rescue. And it's many ways, um, and they were two separate books, but I was actually working on the books simultaneously, which I don't recommend for anyone. It's like, <laughs> have to, no. it's like being married to two people, uh -huh. uh, working on the mermaid book and working on the banshees, werewolves and vampire book. And, and the sirens um, almost had more of a banshee like quality to them. Um, the way that they would call with their songs, um, the fact that they appeared as beautiful women and not necessarily just, you know, half in the water and, um, their sort of ability to enchant to the point of disorientation, which, um, kind of, you know, just doesn't, again, doesn't necessarily speak to them being 
evil or menacing, but they certainly have a sort of darkness about them. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. So kind of a dark mermaid. Well, right? yeah. I, kind I, of. Yes. Well, <laughs> isn't, it's not the same as, as in Ulysses, right? Um, the sirens were the ones that kind of were in like the, the, the gates to the, um, whatever the big port was there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what the, I mean? They were like, yeah, the, port and they were luring them in. Um, yeah, and, the sirens used to sing a beautiful song, right? And, and that's why, that's uh, really you listen, yeah. Song, and that's why we... I think even call sirens sirens because yep. they were sort of, you know, this loud wailing warning. I mean, we if you've ever heard a tornado warning or, you know, some kind of like severe thunder warning, you know, you get these like long moaning siren that is much creepier than um, just your average like, you know, fire fire truck. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Uh, but the the thing about sirens is that they're very they're often uh, called mermaids and are sometimes like mixed in with mermaids, but they actually look more human, and that um, that can make them you know that much more um, deceptive. Okay, we we have another question from chat. Uh, Stephen Scott would like to know: uh, Do you think public perception of the paranormal. Say that three times fast. Stephen, you're killing me. Do you think public perception of the paranormal, including vampires, werewolves, etc., is affected by the media and film more than the original folk tales, such as the sympathetic werewolf a la Lon Chaney is replaced by the Twilight-esque heroic variant? Okay, well, so I think that these sort of these folk stories that, you know, we told around the fire or that were rampant in places like, you know, with the fairies, like especially in uh, Great Britain, um, I think they that was the popular culture of the time. We didn't have television uh, you know, radio wasn't a, a thing. So the way that people communicated was by these oral histories. And so, yes, there was this influence. Now, I think um, that he's alluding to sort of like the perception that we have now. So we had, you know, the Lon Chaney role that became the sympathetic werewolf. We had the, you know, very, um, you know, the handsome, uh, slightly victimized vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the, you know, the... <clears throat> You know the, the haggish sort of witch, and um, you know we can find examples of those, of course, in in different stories. But I do think that with these kind of creatures, there there is a certain amount of their identity that um, melds with the time, and in that way, I guess they can kind of you know they can become immortal and perpetual because they become relevant to the time. They might be you know. Um, misrepresented slightly, but nonetheless, they still, you know, we're tapping into a specific aspect. Um, you know, you have something also like the little mermaid, which was this like, you know, the Disney version, which was this like very upbeat, lovely, everybody's singing, like, let's go to Barbados and have fun. 
dance with the lobsters and all of that. But in yeah. reality, the story, which many people know, the story is very brutal. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just the description of her walking on the sand and every step she takes is like daggers stabbing into her feet. You know, it's this <laughs> like crazy kind of sacrifice that she's making. Um, and so you have like that kind of shift in like, oh, mermaids are, and I'm not, I'm not here to not, you know, mermaids being lovely and happy and people really being into mermaids. But I think mm-hmm. part of what we're attracted to is that sort of lure and enchantment. And whether we realize it or not, there's something sort of like morose and um, uh, frightening about the idea of a mermaid pulling you underwater. And so I think we all kind of have that struggle inside. And so that we can really um, tap into that. And also, you know, just the enchantment of the world under the sea and the many creatures that we don't understand. And, you know, there's this sort of magic to it that... And, and, and it's it's a metaphor, too, for how, you know, sure. women, and, women drag men down and, and, you know, eventually bring them to their doom. <laughs> yeah, it is now. Really? Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, but That's I, it. I, I think that, you know, uh, in popular culture back in the day, these stories also served another purpose, and that was, you know, to keep your children from playing too close to the bog, to keep your children from wandering along where, you know, there were sneaker waves and high tide, to keep your um, husband from wandering along the, the road too late at night drunk because, you know, the polka might come. So there are stories that exist. I mean, they kind of – there's no – either or they exist because we have a need for them but they also exist so yeah I so, so you saw and I know you did the the uh, the mockumentaries on the mermaid and, and oh, what was it what were your thoughts on those well those are you know I, it's great for book sales they came out <laughs> actually like the first one came out right as I was finishing um among the mermaids. And I actually was able to go back into the manuscript during, you know, like my author review pass. And I asked permission from the publisher if I could add in a few passages because this um, mockumentary had just come out. And then while the book um, was already published, then the, there was like a follow-up. And uh, I mean, the thing is, they were they do say in the beginning, people were like outraged that, you know, that it was on, I think it was on like Animal Planet. And I guess there was a fairly brief disclaimer in the front saying like, this is all fictional. Mm-hmm. So many people were like, oh my God. And apparently, um, you know, the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association had to like issue a public declaration. Yeah, I know. Wasn't it a riot? <laughs> We do not believe in mermaids. It was like, oh, great. Way to shatter the dreams of, like, every little girl. You know? I know, right? It's like, oh, mermaids aren't real. Use it for PR or something. But um, they did a really, really good job of researching the folklore, of researching, you know, the places where um, these, you know, like, I think in one of the scenes, they actually are at um, Karat Yam, which is this place in Israel, and that is a place that for many, many years, 
like, I don't know, 50 years or something, they've had this, they have this reward for anyone who can catch a mermaid and prove that there's a mermaid there because there's such an old legend about a mermaid being in those waters. So the documentary shows a mermaid in those waters. So I saw that and I was like, yeah, right on. You know, they really did their research. Um, You know, I'm sorry that people got upset that they felt, you know, but I mean, you know, we see these shows about, I mean, even a lot of the paranormal shows and they're not really showing ghosts. They're not proving the existence of ghosts, but they are showing that there's a collective um, belief in them. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and the right. shows themselves are definitely entertainment. And we're talking about the ghost shows as well. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. you know, no matter how you look about it, look, you know, you want to talk about it. That's that's what they are. So mm-hmm. uh, whatever. Yeah. Some of them are more. I mean, it's interesting to me because I think those kind of shows have gained in popularity a lot in the last. I don't know. What would you say? Like seven or eight years, they just kind of have become extremely popular, and there's all these variations on it. And, you know, I mean, from a purely, like, um, you know, an author's point of view, anytime something that you write about becomes part of uh, popular culture, I mean, it's it's a joke, but it's not really a joke. I mean, it is good for your, um, it's good for business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what's really great, Valor, and, and I, I found that, that's why I like your book so much, is... You know, those things that are in the book, the little snippets are in there. I mean, those are true. I mean, those are are true stories. They're not made up stories. That's the cool thing about it. I mean, some of them are totally like, oh, that couldn't possibly be true, but it is. And Oh, yeah. Like the the whole story about that's one of my favorite stories of all time. Can't make this stuff up. It's completely crazy about the... The um, storage facility is auctioned off, and this person buys it, and they find inside the, like, smoker, you know, the barbecue thing. They find this, what they think is a log, and they bring it home. It's all wrapped up, and they unwrap it, and it turns out it's like someone's leg from the knee down. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. It was smoked. It was okay. It was oh. So they contact the and the authorities find who's, you know, because it's one of those auctions where someone defaulted on their payments and so all right. auctioned off. So they contact them and it th- this is where it gets even weirder. It was not the leg of someone who had died. It was it was the woman who owned the, the storage thing. It was her son and he had had some kind of accident and so he had to be amputated from the knee down. Oh, geez. he decided to keep the leg. I don't know how he talked his medical professional into letting him keep that because oh, it's pretty good cool. to even get an x-ray, you know? Oh. So I'm like, what? Okay. Oh. So oh. he said, but this was in, I forget now because it's been so long since I wrote the story, but it, it was, um, it was somewhere in the Southeast, I believe. I'm not sure exactly. I'd have to look it up. But anyway, so this continues on, and um, then it gets it gets worse. It gets weirder because I'm asked, "What's the weirdest thing you've you know you read when or that you read about when you're writing the book, The Bazaar?" And I tell this story, and it it was someone who was um, doing the who was interviewing me was from this same state where this had taken place, and they said when the host was from that state, and he said, "Wait a minute." I remember that story that went to court television. And so he sends me this link. I look it up and it went to like court TV. And what happened is the guy whose leg it was had to sue, uh, 
I think he sued to get his leg back. Yeah. And he lost. And he had to pay the person $5,000 to get his limb back. And it was just like, <laughs> why? How is this even possible? How could he even go this far and, and oh. yet get further? So, yeah, I mean, those kind of fun, sto- fun quote unquote, stories are, um, there are so many of them out there. And That's you're just so scratching your head, just going like, really? And why would someone like, keep it? Why, if you've got a leg from a storage facility on a barbecue grill, why would you keep it? It was smoked. It was okay. Oh, my God. I would. I have uh, I have the job on of a nun. So, okay. Well, his you know. story was that he just thought it was just a – he thought it was just a, uh, a log or something in there, oh. like not burned all the way. But then why not turn it over at that point? Now you're like, see, oh, there's an opportunity here. This guy must really want his leg. And, you know, there's always – there's always <laughs> – facility and there's you know ears in a jar and you're just like no you read things like that in the everyday like depravity of of uh mankind and then you think my lord mermaids are sounding you know mermaid death is sounding real good right about sounding really good yeah it is yeah it is it is i have a question varla okay Oh, in okay. all your well, your, before your... you ask you a question, why don't we play another Beyond Bizarre? Let's okay, and it's a good Sorry. break here since you have a question. We'll come back. We'll we'll have Anne's question. See, that's a little tease for it. See, okay. <laughs> what's she gonna all ask? Right. Yeah, there you go. The haunting of Flight Four Hundred One. Between 1973 and 1974, on board numerous Eastern Airlines L-1011 jets, passengers and crew reported seeing, hearing, and even speaking to apparitions of Captain Bob Loft and Second Officer Don Repo. The ghostly crew members were both victims of the crash of Eastern Airlines Flight 401, which had gone down into the Florida Everglades on December 29, 1972. Passengers on separate flights correctly identified the deceased crew members, and flight engineers, pilots, and flight attendants all verified similar encounters with the ghosts of Loft and Repo. The crash and the reported sightings became the subject for The Ghosts of Flight 401, a book written by John G. Fuller in 1983. Freaky Fact from Barla Ventura's Beyond Bizarre. That's a great story. That's actually in my book, Ghost of Day, as well. So, yeah. And I, I remember that. I was around at that time when it happened, uh, when that flight went down. So, and now that we teased you a question, what is it? Okay. In all your, your vast research on all these bizarre things and, and the creatures, and what do you have, like, a favorite uh, creature in all your, all your, your uh, travels here? Creature. I, I would... I would have to go with the banshee. I mean, yeah. it's horrible to say that because they are, they're not really misunderstood. They're feared for a reason, but there's something about the, um, just the lore around them. And there's something about 
they're almost trying to do a good deed. It's like this close to being a good deed because they're actually just warning you. Mm-hmm. Um, there are variations and we have warning ghosts in, um, almost every culture actually, you know, we, we have many, many instances of warning ghosts, but the banshees, specifically the Irish banshee, mm-hmm. you know, they, they straddle the world of ghosts and fairies in a way that few creatures do. And I think that that's really fascinating about kind of the fairy kingdom in general. And I, while I was writing this book, I did spend quite a bit of time in Ireland and um, had been there before. And I think there's something about these sort of, um, you know, there's sort of a, uh, almost like a circular sort of approach versus a linear approach to here's where, you know, humans are and here's where banshees are. And it, it just, it's sort of overlapping and it's a little bit difficult to quite grasp in the every day, but there's, um, you know, in, in Ireland, it's not like you're Catholic or you believe in ghosts or you're mm-hmm. Catholic or you have had a banshee encounter or, you know, you're religious, but you, it, there, there's so, so much of it overlapped in the culture. And so it's a really nice place to spend time, especially writing because of that sort of, you know, the, and it's not like they go around going like, yeah, our veil's thin, you know, we all like this thing going on with the fairies. And it's just such a part of who they are that it's not really like trumped, but you ask almost anyone, anyone, and they've got a story. You know, wow. the taxi driver will tell you a story. The bartender <laughs> will tell you a story. The guy you meet at the bar will tell you several stories. There's <laughs> So there's something about um, that idea and the idea of the banshee kind of. I'm also a huge fan of pukas. I find pukas to be delightful. They're completely mischievous. Sometimes they appear as rabbits. Sometimes they appear as fierce horses. Sometimes they're even like a a horseless, you know, a a carriage that that rides across the shadowy, the shadowy hills. And um, they really just sort of like freak you out. So they grab you and they take you on this crazy ride or they appear, they keep appearing and they keep appearing like um, Harvey in the movie with, you know, it's a, a play. And then it became a movie with Jimmy Stewart. Elwood P. Dowd is like haunted by this giant rabbit. rabbit. And that made Johnny Darko. It's kind of the same thing. It's like this. Puka keeps appearing, and they're a little menacing, and they're a little scary, but they're totally mischievous, and they they usually exist to kind of just, like, shake you in your boots. And sometimes there's just a warning, like, hey, you're walking really close to the cliff. You know, you're <laughs> warned not to drink this late and walk along this road, and Puka lives down here, and, you know, you're this is what you're going to get. And so there's all these great stories about that, and they're all super funny because they always – revolve around like a town drunk. So there's this element of, did it actually happen? And I love, I, I just kind of love the kind of the, the layers with that, uh, with that creature. <laughs> We've all seen a puka or two. Let's, let's face facts. You know? I'm sure, you know, I think we can relate a puka, um, to our area, to the redheaded hitchhiker. Oh yeah. He just appears and disappears and just scares the crap out of you. Yeah. As you're, coming home late at night on Route 44. Oh, and you just really shouldn't be coming home late at night. And it's like, what are you doing out so late? Probably but not. Again, that's where, you know, so many of those stories happen 
in those wee hours. And there's something about, you know, I, when I was writing this, um, this last book, there were, I was getting toward the end and I had kind of, I had this whole chapter and it was this chapter on, um, hobgoblins who are little tricksters. They're not real menacing, but they're annoying and they might take mm-hmm. things and, you know, they, they like to have their way. And I am just, you know, I'm writing it and I'm, it's, it's like two in the morning and I had <laughs> like a second wind and I'm just kind of like hammering away. And then I realized like, wow, I'm really exhausted. I need to take a break. So I just like step outside for a minute, get some fresh air. I'm like, okay, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just, I had saved my document, all the things you need to do. I'm just going to take a break. I'm going to go back in. I'm going to, you know, just close everything up and I'm going to come back to it tomorrow. And so I did that. And then the next day I came back to it in the entire chapter that I had written. And I'm, I'm talking like a chapter, which is, you know, was mm-hmm. uh, like several thousand words mm. was gone. Oh no. Hobgoblins, completely hobgoblins. Ah. Uh, uh the chapter on the hobgoblin and i was like god damn it they got me you know <laughs> well it could have been mercury in retro you know he gets blamed for everything too no, during a mercury retrograde and it also could have been exhaustion copy paste you know yeah, hit, maybe hit so, instead of safe but it was so i was able to mostly reconstruct it but i never quite got the same thing back and you know i tried everything i mean i'm i've been doing this for years so i i know all the tricks to try and recover things and i just couldn't i couldn't figure out what happened oh no i just goblins bought myself another week with the publisher said hey off goblin related incident i need a little (laughs) more time they were very understanding (laughs) just put it in the book there you go (laughs) So anyway, have you dealt with trolls at all? Oh, a little. I was just discussing trolls the other day um, uh, for a different project. I'm uh, writing something about the Tooth Fairy. And Uh, um, one of the questions was, does the Tooth Fairy uh, interact with, you know, is the Tooth Fairy only for humans or does the Tooth Fairy do other creatures, gather teeth from other creatures? And um, I just said, well, you know, the Tooth Fairy doesn't really do animals, but there are baby pixies and other things of the, you know, elfin kingdom that are, that lose teeth, um, except for trolls. Absolutely will not deal with trolls. Trolls are opposite. (laughs) They don't get their adult teeth until they're adults, and they're just sort of rather uh, grumpy and hideous. But we also know trolls as protectors. So they have a sort of a gargoyle like quality to them in, in, uh, architecture and in, um, mythology as well, where they are guardians watching over, you know, the rivers and watching, uh, bridges. over the bridges and, um, you know, caves and caverns. They do tend to be near water. They're not going to let you over that bridge, you know, the bridge, just right. the way it is. And, you know, it's also a good way to kind of, again, keep the children from going beyond the borders <laughs> to mm-hmm. be careful of the troll under the bridge. Right. So yeah, I absolutely. actually see a troll right now, which means I have to keep you from talking anymore. So, <laughs> <laughs> because it's the end of the show, believe it or not. That was the fastest hour in the West. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so anyways, uh, check out uh, Vala Ventura's, uh well, your new book isn't out yet, right? When's that coming out? It isn't out yet. It'll be out in, I believe, March or April of next year. So we have to wait through the winter. Um, I'd love to. Um, I'll share information with that with you as soon as I have the press cool. release for that. 
Very, very cool. And anyways, and, and mentioning, uh, I'd like to mention something before we go to it, and that is, of course, uh, next month, Steve Parsons will be over from the UK for a series of events, including Spirit Quest 2016, Angels and Demons. So uh, check out my website, neghostproject.com, the letter N, the letter E, ghostproject.com. And of course, on the 19th of August, I will be doing a pirate and ghost cruise out of Rye Beach. So come to that because that's always fun i get to dress like pirate too which makes it even better that's the best so anyways there's the tunes and we got to say goodbye to you vala thank you so much for being with us it was great to hear your voice again it was awesome yeah thanks for having me it was a pleasure to be back i really and keep it support. keep in touch all right i will all right thanks so, barla good night good night till next time good night and god bless thanks for listening everybody talk to you next week to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good law.